Good morning, Missio. This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him as the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Good morning, Missy. Missy, would you pray with me? Jesus, as we celebrate Advent and Tell the story of Advent and rehear the prayers that surround your birth. I feel like I just got to confess that I'm not, I'm not like emotionally there in it with you. I feel caught up in like a lot of other stories and a lot of competing narratives and a lot of other emotions and a lot of things that feel really pressing. And so I think I'm struggling to be present to you. But God, as I hear your story today and as I hear Sandy read and as I'm led into worship, like, it's starting to pull on me in a way because you are present to me despite my lack of presence. So God, I pray that it would be true of all of us here that no matter where we come from or what kind of space we're in or like what this week was or what this year has been, that today would be a moment where we know that you are present to us. That in Advent you are present, and then through your Spirit you are present. So you've got to open us up to pay attention to you, to know us, and to be drawn into you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, amen. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, if you're new or we have not met, my name is Johnny Morrison. I'm also one of the pastors here. Thankful that you're here. Uh, as you heard, if you didn't know, uh, we are in the season of Advent. And Advent is a fancy church word for Christmas. And it means that we are telling the story of Jesus' arrival. We're telling the story of this like long-awaited expectation being fulfilled in Jesus. And it's a beautiful season. It's a season that like, we love celebrating as a church, that I think most people really love to celebrate. But it is also kind of a weird season. Like, I think we can be honest about that, that it's a little weird. And there's lots of things about it that are weird. One, we believe that God became a baby. That's weird. 
It's okay to say that. But it's also a weird season because I don't know that there is a time of year that so competes for our attention in the way that Advent and or Christmas competes for our attention. We have all of these festivities, like so much more festivity, so many more things to do, things to participate in, things to, to like buy or to give or parties to go to or stories to tell than maybe any other season of the year. There's so many things that are competing for our attention. And maybe the easiest thing to like criticize as competing for our attention is the way in which the season of Christmas or the season of Advent becomes about consumption. This is maybe the easiest thing to notice. Like, obviously, Christmas gets kind of subsumed into a narrative of consumption, and we make it about gifts and giving and about what we want and about what others want. But even, like, below the surface of consumption, the season asks us deep questions about what it is that we want, what it is that we desire. I was even having a conversation with Tori yesterday, my wife, and we've, like, kind of worked hard over the last couple of years to make Advent about not gifts. So we don't give each other Christmas gifts. It's totally fine if you do. We just have, like, decided that's not what we want to do. If we're going to give gifts to each other, we're going to do experiences or, like, trips or um, it could be, like, generous gifts to the community or whatever. We've decided, like, we're not giving gifts to each other mainly because I'm a terrible gift giver. And she's like, I don't want to be disappointed anymore. <laughs> just easier for our relationship if you just cut it out altogether. But yesterday we were still talking about, like, how do we do this season? And I, and I was saying, like, I don't, this, this like, Christmas season is hard for me because I always feel like I don't, I get, like, missed in it. Like, there's a lot of expectations here, and there's a lot of expectations my parents have, and you have, and, and like, church has. And I was like, I don't know where I fit in it. And she was like, well, what do you want? And I was like, oh, what an interesting question. I was like, what do I want in the middle of it? And as I've been wrestling with that question, like, her asking me what do I want, and it feels like the season asks me what I want. As I was like reflecting on that, a part of me began to feel a little shameful for asking that question and to even like lament the fact that I was asking the question, what do I want? It kind of felt like I was being like wrapped up into the consumption narrative and I was just making the season all about what it is that I want. But at the same time, that actually is the essential question of Advent. The question at the very heart of the story of Advent, the heart of the story of Jesus entering into the world, is actually a question about what do we want? What do we long for? What do we hope for? What do we desire? Advent is a season of expectation, but to expect is to want something, to long for something. We've been in the series looking at the prayers surrounding Jesus' birth, and these prayers are loaded with desire and expectation and hope. The first prayer we looked at was Mary's prayer, and she has hope of a child. But she also has hope of like another world being birthed through the person of Jesus. Last week, Heather walked us through the prayer of Zechariah, and similarly, he has this hope of a child, like this, the child and the son that he's going to have, and then also the hope of salvation for the people of Israel. There's a deep longing there, a deep desire there, a want in his prayer. And today we're looking at the prayer of Simeon, and the biography of Simeon that we get is actually very small 
but it introduces him this way. It says that he was a person waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was a person waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him, and it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. His whole biography is simply this, that he is a person who wanted something so bad he would not die until he saw it. He so desperately wanted to see the thing that God was doing that he would not die until he got to see it. The heart of his prayer is that he wants something. He longs for something. The question, though, for all of us is not do we want or is Advent about wanting something. The question is more important. It is what do we desire and what do we want? And that is not an easy question to answer. It's not an easy question to answer because on one hand, our world just has a lot of answers to the question. And not even necessarily terrible answers to the question. It has lots of answers to the question, lots of ways to go about figuring out what it is that we want, what it is that we desire. And some of those answers are good and compelling. Some of them are shallow and hurtful. But there is lots of answers to the question, what do we want? And so it's difficult to begin to answer what we want because you have so much to sort through, so many things to parse through, so much information to begin to work through. How do you even navigate that kind of question? I don't know what I want for breakfast, let alone in like an existential kind of way. So it's hard to answer because there's so many options. But it is also a hard question to answer because in figuring out what it is that we want, what it is that we desire, well, that question challenges and reveals something about us. As we wrestle with the question, what do we want, it presses us into a terrifying vulnerability, a, a place that exposes us, a place that reveals us, and that is scary and difficult. Because what if what we want at the very bottom of everything is not the thing that we have been advertising to the world around us? What if the thing that we want at the very bottom of everything feels different and alien and strange than the advertisements that we give or the way that we project ourselves to the world? And what if everyone discovers that? And what if that's made known? And what if that is revealed? Well, then something deep and dark and true about us would be exposed. And that feels terrifying and very vulnerable. So to wrestle with the question, what do we want? Well, it's, it's just, it's fraught with difficulty. One, how do we answer it? And two, to answer it could lead to vulnerability. And so it's a difficult question to answer. And yet, it is also a fundamental question to answer because in discovering what it is that we desire, what it is that we long for, and having that exposed and revealed to ourselves, well, I think that's the place that we begin to experience healing. And this is what Simeon's prayer does for us. If you're in Luke, you can go to chapter 2, verse 25, or the text will be on the screen. Just as a way of a bit of context for Simeon's prayer, Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, 
are in the temple. And they're in the temple eight days after Jesus' birth. So we're like right on it. And they're there because according to Jewish custom, there's some things they have to do in the temple. One, Jesus has to get circumcised. Two, they have some sacrifices to offer. Three, they have some prayers to make, right? There's these rituals that they have to do. And while they're in the temple, the text says this, Simeon, random guy, moved by the Spirit, went into the temple courts. And he was there when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the customs of the law required. This is an amazing moment in the text. This comma between verse 27 and verse 28 is doing a lot of work. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, No context for this man coming in and taking your child. He's led by the Spirit, enters the temple, takes Jesus away from his mom, and says this, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. So this random person takes Mary's baby and then offers this beautiful prayer. It says, you have fulfilled your promise to me. The thing that I was waiting for, the thing that I was hoping for, the thing I would not die until I saw, you have now given it. But even more importantly, you have fulfilled your promise to Israel. This is what H.T. preached on last week in the, the text on Zechariah's prayer of salvation. The story is being fulfilled in this person. And he goes on to say something even more massive. He says this is a light to the Gentiles, which would have been so controversial to hear in that moment, that Jesus was for the world, not just for the Jewish people, but for everyone, that everyone you've considered other, everyone you've considered less than, everyone that you have tried to scapegoat is being brought into the kingdom. And the text says that Mary and Joseph are amazed by this, which of course they are. This random old guy just said this amazing blessing over their child. But then something very strange happens in verse 34. It says, Simeon blesses the parents, but then looks at Mary and says, but this is going to be hard. It says, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, the child is destined to be the cause of the falling and rising of many. And to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. These two moments are so strange being put together that they almost feel contradictory. Like you have one moment of like such glory and such joy and such happiness and then right following it, Simeon speaks a word of grief so painful. You have to hold these moments of both glory and grief together. And as we're like listening to it, I, I, like, how do we account for it? And what we're seeing is that the advent of Jesus, it challenges what we desire and reveals what we hope for. And that is painful and difficult. And that is hard for us to receive. We see this playing out, that Simeon begins talking about salvation. And as H.T. walked us through last week, salvation is the hope of Israel, the rescue of the world. And Jesus 
is held by Simeon and called the hope of the world. But then right at the tail end of that, Simeon says, and it will be the rising and the falling of many. Salvation is good news because it means that God is healing the world. Salvation is good news because it means that God is upending systems of injustice. Salvation is good news because it means that God is bringing his kingdom. But that news is not good if you have built your life on the way the world is. That news is not good if you have established your own identity, your own world, or your own hopes, or your own deepest desires on the thing that the world is doing, on the way the world works, on what the world promises. Then, if that's true, it is a startling revelation. It is so startling to hear that this person that you have been hoping for is actually going to overthrow all the things that you think matter in the world. That is a startling Revelation. We see this playing out in Jesus' life by every person who is supposed to accept him. Right? The people who should respond best to Jesus are the ones who reject him the most. The religious leaders, they know the story that H.T. walked us through last week the best. They know the hope of Abraham. They know the hope of an heir for David. They know the hope of a greater exodus. They know the hope of being returned home. They know the hopes that are promised and nuanced and articulated all throughout the Old Testament text. They know that it it emanates and articulates in a person, in a Messiah, and yet when they see it in Jesus, they cannot handle it and reject it. Or even another character that is actually noticeably absent from this story of Jesus' birth, the King Herod in the Matthew story. King Herod in the Matthew story is referred to as the king of the Jews, and he's the king over like the province that Jesus is born in. And like the religious leaders, Herod should know the hope of Israel. He should know what the people long for. He should know what brings true healing and true restoration. But when he receives word that Jesus is born from the wise men, he hunts for Jesus, not to worship him or to celebrate him, but to kill him because he sees Jesus as such a threat to the kingdom that Herod has established. Without the person of Jesus... It is very easy for us to use the story of Jesus to justify kind of whatever we want. Story of Jesus without the person of Jesus can give me control. The story of Jesus without the person of Jesus can justify my pursuit of comfort, my pursuit of wealth, my pursuit of religious superiority. We see this throughout history. It's not novel. It's not a revelation to you. People in the antebellum south use the religious story of Jesus to justify slavery. We use the religious story to justify the crusades, or even in our own life, I use the religious story to justify shame and to use the religious story to justify exclusion. Religious leaders use the religious story to justify their own superiority over the people of Israel. Herod used the story of Jesus to justify his kingship. It is easy for us to use the story of Jesus to justify our own desire until Jesus is actually there, in the middle of it. 
Because when Jesus arrives, we are confronted with the truth. This is who this story is about. This is why Simeon says, Jesus is to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Jesus arrives into the scene and people reject Jesus. And in rejecting Jesus, it reveals that what we longed for most was not the salvation that Jesus was offering, but something more like preservation. Preservation of an existing world order, preservation of my own identity, preservation of my own systems of comfort and control, preservations of my own superiority, preservations of my own little kingdom. But preservation is not possible in the work of Jesus because he is upending, reconciling, healing. We saw this in Mary's prayer at the beginning of this series. She offers full-blown revolution. But that challenges and reveals what we long for. And the difficulty is is to have that challenged and revealed to us what it feels like death. Which is why I think Simeon goes on to tell Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What a strange thing to hear at such a celebratory moment in a person's life. What a strange thing to tell a new mother that not even you, and not even your hopes, and not even your desires for this baby get to remain. I don't know if Simeon knew the full weight of what he is saying in this moment. If he knew that Mary would someday see Jesus on the cross, but that is essentially what this is pointing us towards. And that is the tricky part, right? Is that Advent, whether we like it or not, or whether we want it to or not, it always moves us towards the cross. It moves Mary towards the cross. So that ultimate moment where the things that we have desired, the things that we have held to, the preservation that we have tried to to establish and keep find their end in Jesus. And the tricky thing about Advent ending in the cross is that if Advent begins to reveal our desires and if Advent begins to even challenge our desires. And the cross is the full-blown confrontation of those desires because as we see Jesus on the cross, we are asked, is this the salvation that you hoped for? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, this is foolishness to the world. It is offensive. Is this the salvation that we actually hoped for? That the God of the universe would become weak, so weak that he would die? Is this the salvation that we hoped for? That the world would be upended? through Jesus absorbing violence into himself? Is this the salvation that we had hoped for? Is this what we wanted? Is this what we longed for? That's the question at the heart of Simeon's prayer. Is this what we want? 
And as we begin to ask that question, as we begin to walk through Simeon's kind of like dual, almost contradictory prayer, begins to do work in our own hearts, revealing our own desires, our false hopes, our true wants. It's true of the season of Advent generally, that as we come to this season, it gives us a chance to ask that question anew. What is it that we want? And as we wrestle with this question today, what is it that we actually long for? What is it that we actually want? And as we wrestle through it through Simeon's prayer and as we feel the difficulty of it and the pain of it, I think the first thing that we are invited to do today is to grieve it. That's what Simeon is doing in this moment, even as he invites Mary into grief in the midst of her celebration. It is an invitation to lament and to grieve that sometimes we desire things that are not Jesus. Sometimes we hold on to things that don't make any sense. Sometimes we put on to Jesus stories that are not his. Sometimes we hold on to these desires and to lose them feels so painful. Like a sword right through our soul. And Simeon names that there is a grief in the midst of that that is worth lamenting, worth naming. And as we name that and own that, then I think a lot of other questions begin to come into us. Like, well, what do we do if that's true of us? And what do we do if that is the reality is that we're walking through this prayer and realizing our desires are being challenged and confronted? Well, then Simeon's prayer also reminds us we are all invited to hope for something better. That we are all invited into Simeon's hope of consolation. And that's not a hope that denies the reality of what he just said, that there's something painful and difficult right at the beginning and end of Advent, a grief that is both mixed into the middle of it. The consolation holds those two pieces together. And that might sound hard and strange and maybe even a weird message to talk about in the middle of Advent when we're supposed to be celebrating and doing gifts. But I think the truth is, this is the Advent we desperately need because it's the only one that does any kind of justice to a world that is as complicated as the one that we live in is. The lives that we live in, the world in which we live, is marred by a very difficult reality. It is painful and difficult, and things that we long for are marked by grief, and our hopes are marked by grief. And even as we celebrate, it's strange. And even as we lament, sometimes celebration begins to move into the middle of it. And it is complicated and trying. And the prayer of Simeon in this moment holds all those things together and says, yes, of course it is, because we long for a consolation that is bigger and more comprehensive and that comes at the end of things. This is what our own hearts need. Because it's the only place that our own desires that feel strange and are being revealed find some place that's bigger than they are. It's what our hearts need. It's what our world needs. And we, Messiah, like Simeon, have been filled with God's Spirit to wait for that true consolation. It's a fascinating moment at the beginning of this text when the other key line of Simeon's biography is not simply that he wants, but that he is moved by the Spirit. 
and empowered by the Spirit, that his waiting is enveloped in God's Spirit and presence. And like Simeon, we as the church are a people that have been filled with God's Spirit to curate and long for and hope in a truer consolation. And I think at one level that's actually maybe even magnifies some of the strangeness of this text because it produces in us a sense of discontentment as we wait for a second advent, a deeper consolation. And yet it also calls us into something because as the church, I think our job is to curate in the world the kind of consolation Simeon holds or the hope for consolation that Simeon holds. We are a people filled with the Spirit to point the world towards truest hope. To be a people who curate a deep hope and point the world toward the deeper hope. That's what it means to be the church. And that's what it means to enter into the season of Advent. It's to long for something, to wait for something, and to have our own hearts curated and driven towards a deeper longing. So, Missio, today, could we use Simeon's prayer to curate in us a deeper hope? And then could we practice that hope together? This is what we do every single week as we come to the table. It's that strange moment where there is something celebratory and then also something kind of discontenting about the celebration because we gather at a feast, but it is not the full feast. We gather at this moment that we have been welcomed into Jesus' work, but it's not the full work. It's the arrival, but not the consummation. And so as we gather at the table, it's like the first fruits, the scripture said, that remind us the full feast is coming. So, Missio, today, can we curate in ourselves a hope for what is to come? Praying Simeon's prayer, and then by practicing together at the table. Missio, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you give us a hope that is real and like rugged enough for the world in which we live in. A hope that does not ask us to, to deny what it is that we feel or what it is that we experience or what it is the world is going through, but actually offer something substantive and true into the midst of all of it. God, as we tell that story today and as we gather at the table and as we sing your songs, would that hope in us curate, become more real and more tangible, so much so that we could, like Simeon, wait eagerly for the consolation of the world. So that we, like Simeon, could curate that hopefulness, both in our own hearts and in the world around us. So God, today, help us to hope. And help us to be a people of hope. curate a sense of discontentment and hope in those around us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This year we're going to continue worshiping. You have a little communion element as you're ready. I just invite you to take that on your own time and then to continue to sing and worship with us.